This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Which will appear on the screen behind me if you have your Bible with you. I invite you to turn there to the eighth psalm. Listen to the word of God. A psalm of David, who writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm number eight is the first true praise psalm in the book of Psalms, and the only praise psalm, I believe, out of these 150 that is addressed entirely to God. And in this short composition, King David celebrates the majesty and glory of the Creator who fills the earth and the heavens. And when Israel sang this psalm in the courts of the temple, the psalm which their musician king had composed for them, they were rejoicing that their God was not just some tribal godling whose dominion was limited to a small rocky strip of land on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. They were confessing that our Lord, our master is the Lord. Capital letters, Yahweh, the one who says, I am who I am, whose dominion fills the universe, who reigns over all nations and over all creation. And when as the true Israel of God, the church worships the people of God, we are fulfilling the task of God's people to reflect his glory back to him. As praise emerges from our lips and from our hearts, we are fulfilling the purpose for which God created us. And we say with David today, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And notice in this psalm, the first and the last verses, verses 1 and 9, are identical. David ends his psalm, he rounds off his worship, with the very same phrase with which it began. Awestruck worship at the majesty of God. And what I find so fascinating about Psalm 8 is here's this beginning and ending, eyes directed to God, but the heart of the psalm is praise to God for the amazing dignity and worth that we have 
as human beings. I find that very startling. And it challenges a lot of assumptions that we have about worship. As though worship is nothing else but proclaiming how amazing God is. And here David is saying, God, we are amazing as human beings. And we give you worship and praise for how you have created us. You have crowned us mere creatures with glory and honor. You know, the glory of God is not a zero-sum game as if there's only so much glory to go around. It's a scarce resource. It's limited. And if we're crowned with glory and honor, there's less for God. As if the more we demeaned and lowered human beings, the more we honor God. That's not the case, according to David. In fact, God's design is that as human beings, his own glory would descend and rest on us, would fill us and then radiate outwards and upward from us to creation and to the creator as our praises ascend back to God in worship. And Psalm 8 tells us that human beings have incredible dignity, value, and worth because God has given us, he has graced us with incredible value, dignity, and worth. It's hard to believe, but God really loves human beings. God is extremely fond of humans, all of us. And I would say this psalm could be described as the foundation of Christian humanism, a joyful celebration of the gift of personhood that God has given us, a psalm filled with optimism at human potential. Christian humanism, I say, not to be confused at all with secular humanism and aggressive atheism, which argues that God is dead, belief in him is no longer tenable in our modern age. Human beings have to step forward, we've come of age, and we can step into the place at the center of reality which God has vacated. The Humanist Manifesto Number 2, written in 1973, in the preface, the authors write, traditional theism, especially faith in the prayer-hearing God, assume to live and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, this is an outmoded and unproved faith. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. And this afternoon, I'm certainly not trying to baptize that kind of secular humanism and claim it for Christ. I'm talking about a much older humanism that goes back to the Renaissance, that goes back to the early church, back and back to the new and the old Testaments. Human beings are an awesome expression of the creative power of God and his grace and his glory. And of course, there are many reasons for believing that human beings are beneath God's notice. Never more so when we stand outside, far from the lights of the city, in the blackness of some rural area, and stare up at the sky. 
And truly, the mind boggles at the vastness of the universe. If the Milky Way galaxy, this galaxy alone, if we scaled it down to the size of North America, the solar system would only be the size of a coffee cup. And the Milky Way is only one of perhaps 100 billion galaxies in our universe. And I imagine David, the shepherd boy, curled up in his blanket on the slopes of some frosty hillside, gazing up at those swirling constellations and the thousands of stars visible to him glittering in the darkness. And David has this reaction to that experience of the grandeur of God's universe that is not the one that we would expect. When most people have that experience, whether we're secular or religious people, we feel, wow, human beings are so puny and insignificant. And how foolish and arrogant to imagine that we, minuscule specks, matter in the context of this ginormous vastness. The normal response is to look up at those stars and be overwhelmed by our insignificance. That is not David's response. He looks up at the constellations and he is overwhelmed by humanity's significance. How amazing, David thinks, that out of all these marvels, God's attention, his eye and his heart are on us human beings. That he actually cares about us, not just in a general mass of humanity, but each of us as individual, particular people. He cares about our stories, our problems, our predicaments. We matter to God. In verse 3, David describes the heavens as the work of God's fingers. As though in comparison to the immensity of God, the stars, these humongous balls of flaming gas, were like fine detail work with what God needed to use his fingers to put them into place. The stars are not large to God. They are tiny little toys. And yet, God's concern is not on the stars, even though he knows them all by name and he's placed them where he's placed them. His concern is on something even tinier, unimaginably tinier, human beings like you and me. God's universe is anthropocentric. Human beings are at the center of God's creation. And God has designed the cosmos to circle around the human race. Delirious and arrogant as that may sound, it is God's truth. I don't know if any of you have gone to the Opera House on Rustavelli Avenue. It's an incredible building if you've gone there to see a ballet performance or an opera. 
the building itself is beautiful, chandeliers are hanging down, and the artists there put up these incredible fabrics and backdrops. And Michelle and I had the privilege of being taken backstage. It's a whole other world down there. There's a huge area with trucks driving around and all sorts of ramps and pulleys, and there's a whole system there. But those things are all there to serve the actors, the dancers, the singers who are on stage. And all the swirling marvels of God's universe are only the backdrop for the great drama of the creation the fall and the redemption of the divine image bearers, us. Because we're not just slime that climbed out of the primordial sea. We've been fashioned from the dust, but we've been fashioned by our creator who breathed his own breath into our nostrils. He set us on our feet, he named us, and he declared us to be very good. Your existence is a very good thing. And humanity's presence on this earth delights the heart of God. I'm afraid some Christian accounts are so consumed with humanity's sinfulness and depravity that they forget that we are a good thing created by a good God. It is good for us to be here. And in the account in Genesis, in the very beginning of your Bible, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, the climax of God's artistic work in the world are us, frail, mostly hairless bipeds. And we've been created, male and female, in the image and likeness of God. Incomprehensible images of the incomprehensible God, in the words of Gregory of Nyssa. Every human being is an icon of God on this earth, a walking, living, breathing window on the divine, representing the creator wherever we go, bearing his presence, called to name, to classify the animals, to keep and to tend and to expand the garden, to tame the chaos of the wilderness. And it's remarkable that Genesis describes all human beings like this because in the other cultures surrounding them in the ancient Near East, it was only the king who was considered to be the image bearer of God. The rest were merely slaves of the God, things that could be consumed and cast away, relatively worthless. And in Genesis, God reveals, we are all image bearers. We are all kings and queens in God's creation. And in fact, as Christians, we insist that every human being is a sacred image bearer. Men and women, the unborn and the elderly, those with Down syndrome, those with schizophrenia, Peruvians, Somalians, Ukrainians, Christians and Muslims, Hindus and atheists, rich people and poor people, 
straight people, gay people, transgender people, all have worth, without exception, as God's image bearers. And every human being, without exception, possesses human rights given to them, not by the state who can take it away, not by social contract or mutual agreement, given by their creator. And mistreating people, abusing people, oppressing people, is a desecration of the divine image and a kind of a blasphemy and an affront to God himself. What I'm describing is a kind of theological anthropology. Human beings who find their meaning as we orient ourselves around God and only around God. And I want you to notice how the very structure of this psalm speaks to that. Humanity at the center of this psalm, bracketed in the first and last verses by the glory of our Creator. As though we are only ourselves when we're surrounded and enclosed and encased by the song of praise that arises to the eternal one. Ellen Chari, she writes, human dignity enjoys its full stature within the grandeur of divine majesty. Worship defines us as human beings. And we are never so noble as when we are on our faces before our Creator. Never so royal as when we are acting our priesthood. We are homo liturgicus, man as worshiper. That is who we are. That is where we find our joy, our meaning, and our destiny. God has crowned us with glory and honor. He's made us a little lower than the angels, David writes in verse 5. Just below the Elohim, the divine beings. As though human beings have been placed by God between him and his world. They're in the middle to represent God to the world and to represent the world to God as priests, and as kings. In fact, we're really regents as human beings, regents of God to his earthly creation. In verse 6, David praises God for making human beings rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. And our calling as human beings is to exercise dominion, to wear the crown and to wield the scepter, reigning on God's behalf with his authority and his power in this world. We've been given a mandate from God to care for and extend the garden, to conquer the chaos, to defeat the enemy, to bring forth worship 
from the animate and the inanimate creation. And true kings and queens always reign, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of those who are ruled. God has blessed us to be a blessing to the rest of creation. Human beings are there to bless by our reign the domesticated and the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. God's creation is not a kind of unlimited cupboard of natural resources that we can exploit for our own benefit. We're called to be gardeners, to tend, to care for, to love all of God's creatures in which he delights to exercise ecological stewardship so we can offer the creation back to God for his worship. And I find it fascinating even how so many non-Christians in our world have this innate sense of caring for creation. They can't properly explain why they have this desire as human beings. It's because God has put in the heart of every human, every human being the noble calling and the heavy responsibility to love and to care for God's world. Of course, there's more to the drama, isn't there? Our reign is contested. We are far from God. We are confused about our purpose. As our first parents rebelled against their creator. They sought to become like gods apart from God. And Adam and Eve were alienated from God, that sweet communion in the cool of the day with God was broken. They were expelled from the garden where an angel now stands with flaming swords. And in the fall, we were all severely broken and damaged as human beings. We're not worms, of course. We should never describe human beings as worms. We're, in fact, far worse than that. This is the full horror of human sin, that we've plunged from this high position that God created us for, and we've deeply desecrated ourselves, and now we find ourselves feeding on the slops far from our Father's home. Satan promises each of us, if you listen to me, you will be like God. And, of course, we end up lower than the beasts. Because autonomy from God, freedom from God, as if there was such a thing, always, in the end, results in the cheapening of human beings. And it's no accident that very soon after the fall, we have the first murder. As a human being, a precious human being, is destroyed by a brother. And this is why all the hopes, all the projects of secular humanism, noble as they might be in some ways, are doomed to fail because they're all running on fumes, living off the shrinking inheritance of Christianity in the West. They're energetically sawing off the branch they are sitting on. Because if human beings are just another organism, with no meaning or purpose except whatever we invent for ourselves, then 
than any talk of dignity or worth or purpose. It's just a nice story we're deluding ourselves with. When human beings cut themselves off from communion with God, we're actually severing something within ourselves. We're destroying our own selves, and we find ourselves alone and afraid in an uncaring universe. I want to quote to you a remarkable passage from the mathematician and philosopher and Nobel Prize winner Bertrand Russell in his book, A Free Man's Worship, which he wrote, oh, a hundred years ago. The definition of a secular universe. And he's remarkably honest in this passage. He writes, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, and that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of universe and ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, on, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertrand Russell is describing, he's lamenting the dead end which the optimism of secular humanism leads us. Life apart from God leads to destruction and to death. Christianity says we are both, as human beings, we are both far greater and more exalted and also far lower and more depraved and more desperate than the secular humanists tell us. And another much older mathematician and philosopher, Blaise Pascal, the French Christian, described human beings as a race of fallen kings. That is the tragedy of the human condition, that we all possess some dim memory of what God made us for, some deep, unformed longing for a destiny greater than we're experiencing, and yet we are so far from our throne. The human image of God, the, the image of God in us still exists. It has not been destroyed, but it has been defaced and twisted and vandalized. And the tragedy is that the fall and the effects of the fall are not limited to human beings, but the whole creation suffers because of us and our sin. As each of us, with their own choices, endorses what Adam and Eve chose to do in wandering from God. It's like a nation with a corrupt and kleptomaniac president, and the whole country suffers from the choices of their leader. And the whole creation groans. The poisoned rivers and polluted skies. The dozens of species that go extinct every day, never to be seen again on this earth. And the the terrible disaster of human-caused climate change. 
all caused by human sin, human greed, human selfishness, unlimited and egomaniacal human consumption. And the cries of God's creation ascends to his ear. And Romans 8 tells us the whole creation is groaning. Subjected to futility, crying out for the sons of God to be revealed. Because only in our redemption can the rest of the created order find its purpose. The commentator Charles Cranfield writes, all the varied chorus of subhuman life created for God's glory is cheated of its true fulfillment as long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. We have fallen and we've dragged down the rest of creation with us. Thank God there is more to the story because God always acts out of his customary love for humanity. And in fact, in the future, far beyond this psalm, God had in mind a glorification of humanity that Israel's king could not have imagined. Marvelous as it is that we're created in God's image, that we reflect his glory, that we bear his presence, in the incarnation, God has taken humanity to dizzying heights. Because in Jesus, God has actually become a human being. It's the supreme demonstration of God's fondness for the human race. The highest glory that human beings could imagine. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The second person of the Trinity has assumed humanity, and he has assumed full humanity. And of course, Jesus, as the God-man, shows us what God is like. When we look into the face of Jesus, we look into the face of God. But what we often forget is that Jesus, the God-man, also shows us what true humanity is like and was destined to be. And when we gaze into the face of Jesus, we are also gazing into the face of the glorified human race. Jesus Christ is the prototype. He is the archetype of what God is summoning the human race to be. Athanasius, St. Athanasius described it like this. 
When the painting has been damaged and defaced, the only way to repair it is to have the subject come and sit again for a new painting. And Jesus has come as the second Adam to sit down and for God to draw anew the portrait of humanity. And we are all destined to bear the image of the man from heaven. Jesus came. He descended. He took on the form of a servant. He entered into humanity in its fullness, fallen, desecrated, damaged humanity. He took the curse. He took the shame so that we might receive glory and honor through him. And this Jesus, who has gone down to embrace and to conquer death, has risen from the grave. He's ascended to heaven. And now, glorified, exalted humanity sits at the right hand of God. There is a human being reigning over the cosmos this afternoon. He wields in his hand an iron scepter, and this human being is destroying all evil, all rebellion, all sin, all resistance to the glory and to the worship of God. David worshiped because human beings had been placed a little lower than the angels. But through Christ, we have now been placed far above all angels, all powers, all principalities, all cherubim, all seraphim at the right hands of God. And Jesus, the King, is reigning on high, overcoming evil through the praises of babies and toddlers, through the weakness of the people of God. Creation suffers because of the sinful choices of humanity. But it is also true that the only hope for this world comes from the human race. When the sons of God are revealed, and only when the sons of God are revealed, will creation sing its true song again. And here we are this afternoon as a fragment of the church, God's new humanity, all of us very much in process, but by the Holy Spirit being made more and more like the Christ who dwells within us. I want to turn, of course, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, as we reflect on the fulfillment of the psalm in Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Quoting Psalm 8, of course. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. 
Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to death. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus has taken up the lost and forfeited destiny of humanity. And he, as the forerunner, has blazed the path. He's forged the way for us to experience our true purpose as image bearers, as those who communicate God's presence, as those who are destined to judge angels and to reign over the new creation. And this afternoon, like every single human being in this world, we face two paths, two choices, a voice whispering in each ear. There is, of course, the voice of the serpent suggesting to us that we will be like gods if we take the temptation of autonomy, if we cut ourselves off from our creator, from our maker, if we separate ourselves from the source of all life and joy and meaning, and of course, the end of that can only be cynicism, despair, and the collapse of all meaning. But Jesus Christ is also standing in our midst, saying to every single person here, find your true self in me. If you are willing to sacrifice your false self, the one you've constructed for yourself apart from God, you will find your true self in me. I and I alone can and will restore your purpose, will give you back your lost dignity. Abandon yourself to me, and I will give you back a selfhood you cannot imagine. We should all be sitting up a little straighter this afternoon. If you belong to Jesus, you have been crowned with glory and honor. God has a great destiny for you, graced to you through his Son by the Holy Spirit. God is the greatest humanist there is. God loves humanity. He loves you. And he wants you to find your meaning, your purpose, your destiny, your dignity, and your worth in Jesus and in him alone. Let's pray. O oh Lord, what is mankind that you are mindful of us? What is humanity that you care for us? that amazingly, incomprehensibly, your eye is upon us, that we matter to you, that you've created us as your image bearers, you've clothed us, clothed us with glory and honor, and you've given us a hope and a future in Christ. All we can do, Lord, is praise you for your marvelous grace. All we can do is proclaim that your majesty 
fills the earth. All we can do is to reflect your own glory back to you. Oh, Lord, help us to live lives that are bracketed before and behind by worship to you. We pray, O oh Lord, that your glory would fill this earth as the waters cover the sea, that you would speak love and affirmation and hope and meaning in Christ to those who lie in despair and purposelessness. And, O oh Lord, help us to be your regents in this world, to represent the kingship of Jesus to the nations and over all your creation. We thank you, we bless you, we praise you, we glorify you, O oh Lord. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, by the Holy Spirit we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.